Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. And today I'm here with Eddie Travia. Um, he's the head of Concilium. It's a major investment company in blockchain um, type applications throughout the world. Eddie, how are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, thanks, Richard. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Um, so first question is, when you, um, when you talk to people about the blockchain, do they know what that is, or are they married to the idea of Bitcoin in their head, and the only thing they can think of is Bitcoin, or are the two concepts um, separating? Uh, yes, that's a good question, because actually for the past two years, the two concepts have been separating, although initially, uh, back in 2009, uh, both blockchain and Bitcoin were one and the same thing, because Bitcoin was the first uh technology and the first protocol using blockchain technology as an, an underlying technology. Um, but since since then, um, in 2014, 2015, um, cryptographers, uh, tech developers uh, have, have realized the potential of the technology itself, blockchain. And so they have more and more the focus has gone into uh, blockchain itself. Instead of Bitcoin, which can be summed up as an application of blockchain, uh, one of the multiple applications, but of course one of the first uh, core applications, which is basically the transfer of digital currencies. And as I understand it, a blockchain is simply a public ledger of transactions, and it uses cryptography to ensure that the, uh, the ledger is correct, and the ledger is distributed amongst many, many different computers. So it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be hacked. And again, everyone can look at the... Yes, that's it. That's the main initial purpose of blockchain. The, the problem with digital currencies that has been uh, the main issue for the last couple of decades when uh, uh, tech developers and, and entrepreneurs were looking at creating uh, different digital currencies before the era of Bitcoin, uh, the problem was called double spending. So basically, it was very difficult for anyone to hold any kind of value in a, in a digital asset, uh, which could be currency or any form of data or, uh, you know, an image file, for example. So the blockchain really solved that problem. The, the, the problem that was solved was the fact that you could actually assign a value to a digital currency because you know that that digital currency could not be replicated because its position in the blockchain was actually uh, only in one wallet or in one uh, you know, the transaction would appear only in one block at a time. You know, it, it's all related to the num to the transactions that one can do. And uh, each block contains a certain number of transactions that have been um, that have been processed through uh, usually an interval of 10 minutes in the case of Bitcoin. Okay. Um, and and what and what a user or what a, a Bitcoin wallet holder would do uh, is basically a transfer with because of because it owns the or a private key, it can transfer that Bitcoin to another to another wallet. Without that private key, the user or the Bitcoin holder cannot do that. Right. Okay. And and that's where cryptography comes on as a public private key uh, type of solution that has, has been existing for a long time. For example, in 
uh, you know, PGP email and uh, other solutions of cryptography. So basically, blockchain is this aggregation, this combination of various technologies which are actually, which have been existing for a while, just combined in a certain way that makes it a special and, in a way, uh, immutable. The immutability comes from the fact that all the transactions are hashed and uh, the information in the, the data in the block is hashed. Hashed meaning you take any any kind of data and you transform it to one fixed string of characters, mm. with a fixed number of characters, and no one can change that. If you change that, then the whole information uh, and the whole uh, block would be uh, would be kind of uh, void in a way, would be broken. Right. So by by the because of the hashing, it's impossible to go back and change anything in the blockchain without actually breaking breaking that chain. That's great. Okay. Um, so besides uh, cryptocurrencies, what other uses for the blockchain are you seeing? Which ones have the most promise and what are you seeing? So, yeah, so initially for the first few years of the Bitcoin era, uh, the transfer of digital currencies was the main uh, was the main purpose. Now, of course, tech developers and, and users realize that actually you can put more can put some data in the when you do a transaction you can actually send some data and then it was realized that uh, you could also turn the whole system into a programmable money in a way or into what is known today as smart contracts so the fact so there are two important aspects to it first of all you can store a little bit of data there is a limit in the block size currently uh, of course and there is a you can store some data in the in every time you do a transaction, so in the blockchain. So that data could, for example, be the hash of a notarized document. So one application in blockchain is to use it as a uh, digital notarization of documents. So, for example, you could store uh, social security documents, healthcare records, land registry information, and store the hash of this, this document into the blockchain. You wouldn't be able to store normally the whole document because that would be too heavy. Now, that's one, that's one uh, application. The other applications are regarding the programmable uh, capacity uh, of programs and codes you can put on the blockchain. Initially, the Bitcoin blockchain was not really uh, created in order to offer a very high level of programmability, if you may say, which is also usually mentioned as Turing complete. So basically, okay. the, 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 the programmability was not great, but so other blockchains have been created. So it's important to note that today there are hundreds of blockchains. Most of them can be seen as kind of clones of the original ones, but some of them serving a very specific purpose. And one of them called Ethereum blockchain, for example, was created with the main purpose of, of hosting and processing smart contracts. So the codes of the smart contract would be in the blockchain. Um, and therefore, that gave also, that led to many applications, for example, uh, uh, smart escrow, smart bonds, uh, smart derivatives. Can you give so me a um, trading, trading aspect? Yeah, can you give me a real, real basic example of how a smart contract would be stored in the blockchain? And how, if it needed to be challenged, you know, that agreement or that contract, how the data would be pulled out and what would be pulled out? Yes, sure. So the, the problem with the uh, semantics is that a smart contract, to be honest, is not necessarily a contract in the, 
in the legal sense of it. So basically a smart contract is basically a program. So it's a bit important to notice that a smart contract will be just a code. So I give you an example. A multi-signature contract in a way is a smart contract in the sense that, for example, three different people could hold three keys for a transaction to be signed, but in order the transaction to be actually signed and processed, you would need only two keys out of these three. So that's an example of a very simple kind of uh, multi-signature contract that works a little bit like a joint bank account, basically, okay. uh, and gives a bit of security to the to a, to a wallet. Now, the uh, the uh, the other smart contracts that exist today, and some of them are, you know, of course, much more complex. Uh, for example, there would be an input. So the input can be either from the blockchain, such as a, a transaction or a, a transaction be between wallets, or the input could be from the outside world. For example, let's say there is a program that is uh, dependent on external data, like the price of gold, for example. So let's say there is there is a service, and there are services today that exist that are called oracles. And the oracles basically take external data that is not that is not in the blockchain that comes from I don't know for example Bloomberg or Reuters or some commodities uh, you know uh, uh, benchmark for for rates or for prices and right. the Oracle would feed that data into the smart contract in the blockchain and it would be used for example to trigger uh, the payment of some kind so for example if the, the smart contracts could be written saying if the gold price that is fed through the Oracle is above I don't know 1,000 then this wallet would receive a certain amount of uh, coins or of some kind of certain assets, right? Okay. So that's an example of a smart contract. But again, unfortunately, the word smart contract can lead to confusion because it's not necessarily a contract and as such doesn't really... In terms of the, your question around the legality, see it more as a piece of software and program than, than, actually, than an actual contract. So the function of the blockchain is what? Is it... It's, um irrefutable way to make sure an agreement is enforced or what is the magic of the blockchain why is it uh does it improve title to a piece of real estate or why does it improve all these these other functions you're talking about how mechanistically does it do that yes so the, the reason why it is being used for what we were discussing like notarization of a land registry hmm. um the the features that are important is first of all all the data that is answered is time-stamped. So it's already, you know, in terms of, it's, it's a, as we said, it's a ledger, it's like a database. Okay. It's a decentralized database, which means that there is not supposed to be a central control that will delete something or that will try to change anything. Uh, in, in, if you take the, you know, the basic, what we call the public blockchain, in like Bitcoin, right. which is, is really, which you can differentiate from the private blockchain. The private blockchain, the difference is you can control who are the nodes, you can control who is authorized or not to be in the in the network or is authorized to do some transactions. But the public blockchain is called a permissionless, so you don't you, you cannot interfere, you cannot prevent some nodes from being added to the network. Now, in terms of the uh, feature that is important, so first, timestamped. Secondly, decentralized. Decentralized means nobody is directly in control. The decentralization part of it also increases the transparency. So basically, you could allow, and that's the case of, of course, all the public blockchains, you could allow, you can allow any third party to go and check that a transaction has occurred, even if the transactions 
are what we call pseudonymous, meaning that you only get a wallet address, you don't necessarily get a name of an organization of a person. Right. So you, you get a wallet address, you know that this wallet has received a certain amount of data or either value or data or, and so the transparency aspect is important. And then the immutability, which is a very, a very important feature of blockchain, especially the public ones. Uh, immutability means no one can go back and change anything. So if you combine all that, time-stamped, uh, transparent, decentralized, immutable, you basically get this new, uh, uncontrolled, uh, notary service that anyone can use, for example. Okay, so I can see how it would make a, a record essentially like set in stone. Ironically, it's electronic, but <laughs> that couldn't be changed or altered or, or messed with. Um, when you go through the process of verifying the information you're seeking, let's say there was a transaction, later on there's a problem, and the court wants to know, okay, did this really happen and when? And How would, how would you check a given blockchain to extract the data you want to prove that XYZ happened, when it happened, and for the amount it happened, and all that? Uh, checking the blockchain is actually quite a simple process, because today, uh, at least on uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, you have explorers, but you also have explorers on the Ethereum blockchain. Most blockchain have one of the first components that blockchains usually build, developers of blockchains may build around a blockchain or the wallets and the explorers, the blockchain explorers. And then they build other tools, which are, for example, APIs that are allowed to communicate with blockchains because blockchains are not made, uh, don't, don't make it easy to communicate with either other blockchains or the external world, obviously. So in terms of the mechanism, if there was a challenge on a Bitcoin transaction, for example, it would be quite simple to go and see that uh, such wallet on that date has transferred a certain amount of Bitcoin to another wallet. Now, if it's a, if it's a notarized uh, application, as we, we were saying, mm. well, you, you, you do need a, a third party, usually, uh, process to, 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 to do that. So, for example, in most cases, let's say an example of a, there is in China a very large, uh, already electronic notary service. They, they process 100 million, 100 million of documents per year. Um, and now they're working with one of the companies we invested in called Factum to actually notarize uh, these documents and use the blockchain to what we call anchor it. So if, it's, if you anchor only the hash, as I was saying, so not the, the actual document, then the hash, when you, when you read it, is not going to give you any information. The hash itself... Uh, will not tell you that this transaction happened. The hash itself is going to be just used as a reference and it's going to be mashed against another hash, which is in a, in a regular database. So when this happens, there is a degree of centralization. There is a layer of centralization that you bring into the blockchain, which is necessary for many reasons. But it's, it's um, so the, the, the main reasons are that basically you need an interface for you know, the land registry or the, or the notarizations company or the, uh, you know, the for example, the Department of Motor Vehicles to be able to access the information, to be able to, to check it against another another database. So hmm. there is there is another layer in that sense, yes. Can you, yeah, I, I don't mean to be, you know, ignorant, but literally, can you give me one example? Let's say, um, 
you know, a notarization, and there's there's a question about it. Can you tell me just real the steps, literally, what would be verified, and then what would they do with the hash to match it to the actual data, and what would you know? Can you give me any example of how that would happen? Well, like yeah, I mean, yes, yes, sure. I mean, the, as I was saying, normally the data itself, the document itself, wouldn't be. Uh, on the blockchain itself, so it right. would be a hash. So the interesting thing about the hash is that, um, as I was saying, you can only go from the document to the hash, which means that you would need to have, uh, if you let's say that if you rehash the exact same document, it should give you the exactly same hash. If you send, if you change the comma in the initial document, then the hash will be completely different. So there are two ways, to, there would be basically two ways to do it. Either you have stored the hash in another database and then you just compare it. And if they completely match, you know, it's just a fixed string of characters. If they match, then you know that, you know, the, the, the same document has been entered into that database, into the blockchain at that, di at that date, because there is a timestamp. Um, if, you, if you don't have the hash, then you would have to rehash exactly the same document and then you could get you should be able to get the same hash but that's always a little bit trickier because you know if there is a little bit difference then it could not work but if you so the, the that's why there's companies that are actually storing the initial hash at the time you hash it uh, in a different database so you can later compare it but technically you could uh, basically rehash the document and make sure that the two hashes are uh, identical so the okay. way you proceed is basically um, you you use a service to to basically extract uh, the information uh, or it's it's, a, it's simple tools actually to to read what has been stored in a specific transaction. So the way it works is that anything you write in a way on the blockchain, you basically it's a transaction. So you're sending a tiny amount of Bitcoin or a tiny amount of Ethereum, which is called Ether, the actual currency of the Ethereum platform. Um, and, and with that transaction, there is, for example, uh, the little piece of data, which is a hash. And, okay. then, and then you can uh, read it again in, in the other, uh, when, you, when, you do, when you do explore the blockchain. And, and, but, you, but of course, it would be much, it's much easier to, you know, to have the transaction uh, and to know that this transaction happened at that time. And then you can basically, uh, using simple tools to go back in and have a look at it. Okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to to drag this out, but you know, I figure no, I'm at I mean, least it's, it's it's good for you know it's good for people who don't know about blockchain to to see that it's not you know it's not that complicated. The, I think the only degree of complexity is because first of all it it incorporates many different technologies, and now on top of that uh, there are programming languages for for example smart contracts, and then. On top of that, for example, you can add oracles or APIs, etc. So there are different. Let's say, let's say it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of things, and it's a combination of concepts that make it a little bit more complex. And of course, the fact that this is open source, and so the the, the public blockchains are usually open source, uh, and right. uh, it means that many people have started to clone them and to make a variety of blockchains. So that's why there is a little bit of added complexity in terms of. Um, uh, other aspects of blockchain. There is one aspect we haven't talked about, which is, for example, proof of work, which is actually a whole industry in itself, which is a, right. an industry called mining. But that's a bit more, you know, that's a bit closer to the. That, that's how you, you you 
make the blockchain basically secure because you could say, okay, it's immutable, it's decentralized, but how can I be sure that it's not hacked? How can I be sure that it's not easily attacked? And the reason why you can be sure it's not easily attacked because behind that blockchain, Mm. you have a huge amount of uh, computational power. Um, In the Bitcoin case, you're talking about thousands and thousands of times more powerful than all the supercomputers in the world. So basically, it's probably the most powerful network on the planet. And and this means that um, it has never been hacked. So the Bitcoin blockchain, since 2009, since it first started, what we call the Genesis block, has never been hacked. Now, mm. you may have heard about exchanges being hacked, wallets being hacked, but the blockchain itself has never been hacked. So, okay, with Bitcoin, I understand mining... The reward is to get bitcoins and make money, but in other systems, yes. in, in other blockchain systems, who would mine and or who would offer proof of work and why? What's the incentive for people to to expend the computational effort and electricity and all that to create proof of work for other blockchains? Well, so there are there are different um, concepts today. So either you kind of piggyback on the Bitcoin network and you do uh, for example, merge mining, or you, or you, or you basically uh, use color coin concept type concepts, which means you actually issue tokens on the same blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, and then you use the security and the resilience that has been proven by the bit, you know, by the Bitcoin blockchain itself. Now, if you clone it, and for example, Ethereum when it was created uh, was created on the basis of proof of work, then basically you need to build that community. You need to build all that community of of miners, so again, it's quite a challenge. You know, it's something that is not built in, in in a few days, right? It takes it takes weeks and months and and, and probably years before it's com- it's very secure. Now, there are blockchains, uh, private blockchains, for example, where yeah. you may not you, you don't necessarily need that proof of work. Uh, you just need as you know as soon as it's um, uh, a network of nodes that you control then basically you are adding another security layer, which can be very simple like SSL, you know, some simple kind of uh, compliance tools. So you, you could use simple other tools, which are very you know traditional tools of security on, on, on networks to prevent atta- attacks. But of course, to this day, uh, you know, the most resilient one is, is, a, is a proof of work because it's a massive computational power. Now, if you do your own private blockchain and you have your own nodes that you're controlling and you try, you know, you try to, to have only, let's say, um, not corrupted nodes, no nodes that, no malicious nodes that would try to attack or try to, to change transactions or to make fraudulent uh, transactions, then, then you don't need basically all that proof of work. Uh, you don't even necessarily need a token either. You can do a blockchain without tokens and without proof of work. Uh, and what remains is basically a decentralized uh, ledger. That's why that's why distributed ledger technology is is called that way. It's because not necessarily uh, it is blockchain, but at the same time it's it's kind of a simplified version where you don't necessarily need all the sticks of a blockchain in the background. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you seen private people creating their own blockchains for their own documentation, or has it not gotten that far? Or companies? No, I mean, yeah. uh, the, the, the companies are, uh, well, in a way, they, they are big 
consortia around. So, for example, I don't know if you heard about R3. R3 is a, is a big consortium of 60 plus banks. Right. And they are working on building private blockchains, right? Um, so, yeah, they may use these private blockchains for storing documents, but I think most of them are more looking at the transactional part, the settlement, the post trade, you know. So, they are looking at uh, transactional issues. Um, maybe smart bonds, uh, trying to remove middlemen, trying to remove uh, clearing issues, trying to re- try to because on a blockchain the settlement is instantaneous. It's real self reconciling because basically you tra- you can transfer you know to you, know, you once the asset has been transferred from one wallet to the other, it has been done. You don't need to wait two days to store the asset somewhere. The same way, for example, securities. Uh, capital markets work today. Capital markets, commodities markets, sometimes you need two days. It's called a, you know T plus two, uh, two, two, two basically, or T two two before it is cleared. What we call cleared before it is settled, right? right. So the, this can be avoided with a blockchain, of course, as long as all the participants are, are active part of it. So this is more the kind of applications uh, that banks are looking at um, in terms of the notarization. Uh, you can basically use different blockchains, like Factum is doing, anchoring the hash uh, on different blockchains, like could be uh, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Ripple, you know, other other types of uh, technologies similar to blockchain. And um, uh, yes, so for the notarization part, you don't necessarily need to build anything because if you want, you can just use a Bitcoin blockchain with a few tools or a few startups out there providing this type of service. Um, uh, which may be, uh, you know, f- for smaller companies maybe than, than Factum, which is more of a like, kind of an enterprise software. Although I know that Factum is also looking at um, enabling through APIs, you know, maybe uh, smaller companies to use their services. Okay. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not. It wouldn't be that hard for for people to actually notarize the documents on the Bitcoin blockchain. You wouldn't need to build a blockchain just just for that. Is there any worry that any given blockchain will be so big that it's not easily storable on computers and uh, decentralized? Not, not really. Uh, the, the blockchain today, all the transactions there, in, on December 24th last year, we passed the 100 millionth transaction on wow. the Bitcoin blockchain, right? 100 million. Hmm. Now, um, in terms of the size, it's still a few gigas, gigabytes. You know, we're not talking about huge amount of storage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the 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 size of the block itself is a major issue right now. It's it's, a, it's an issue of it's a topic of controversy. There are some events called scaling Bitcoin. There are some solutions like uh, segregated witness, like with uh, Lightning Network. Lightning Network, sorry. There are different solutions out there that are supposed to help with that, with the block size capacity. So the block size capacity is a concern because right now, for example, if you if you look at the number of transactions you can do on the Bitcoin blockchain, it's about seven per second, okay. uh, which is of course much lower than any you know uh, Visa or any major payment network. And one of the ways to speed it up would be maybe basically to store more transactions in one block, right? right. Um, that's, that's one way to do it. It's not the only way, obviously, but that's one way to do it. Um, 
There is a company also that I know very well we have invested in called uh, RSK. Its project is called Rootstock, and they are providing smart contract capacity on block, uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain through a sidechain. A sidechain is basically a kind of independent blockchain still that is regularly validated by the main blockchain. And uh, they're using this technology, a sidechain with a federation of nodes that they control. So it's a bit kind of a hybrid system. So you have the Bitcoin blockchain which is extremely secure and you have a sidechain on which transactions can be done much faster. And uh, because transactions can be done much faster, you can do, you, 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 you get to a uh, uh, kind of low latency, you know, high frequency type of transaction environment. Right. And, but still, still these transactions regularly will be also appearing on the Bitcoin blockchain, but not instantaneously, obviously, because they're much faster. So that's a way sidechain uh, and the semi-trusted third-party uh, systems that Rootstock is using through uh, uh, two-way peg with Bitcoin is, 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 you know, it's a bit technical, but it works and it help, it can help solve some of the issues, you know, the issues around scalability of Bitcoin. But yes, you're right. There are some capacity constraints. And the capacity constraint is not not today really the number of gigabytes that the, the whole blockchain has been stored and since its creation. Uh, for, for today, it's quite manageable. And as you know, you know, storage in the long term is, is, is something that gets cheaper and cheaper. So right. it's, it's more the transactions per second that is that is more concerned and the block size itself that is of more concern today than, than the actual overall capacity of the nodes. What about the uh, the law in any given country? Is it, I know that it's probably slow to react, but are there any laws coming or on the books that, w that will accept um, blockchain evidence and what are the rules on it? Have you heard anything in this sphere yet that's materializing? Uh, yes, uh, not too long ago, a few months ago, the French government actually uh, issued a statement and, and uh, that, that uh, some types of bonds, French bonds, mini bonds, I think they call it, um, well, these bonds can be traded uh, on the blockchain and uh, can be recognized, let's say. It recognized the fact that a blockchain has a certain, let's say, uh, value in terms of uh, data storing and, and so that that's the first step um, I would say in general blockchain is not an issue with most governments because because as you as you you know as you understood blockchain is a technology mm. um, the, the, the currency aspect of course is, is, is much is a much trickier aspect legally uh, because obviously uh, the, the currency you know it's as also has been Traditionally, uh, the, the the exclusive, uh, the exclusive, um, let's say domain, uh, air domain, yes, of, of a country, of a government, right, or or the mint, you know, or the minting, uh, call that the mint, mint of, of a country. Right now, under usually central bank or some monetary authority. Now, in some countries, for several years, there have been what we call complementary currencies. So, for example, in the UK, Bristol pound. Switzerland, the WIR, VIR, which is, I think, WIR, which has been coexisting and, and authorized by the countries uh, because they were serving a specific purpose. Um, 
in, in usually in a limited geographical area, like a city, a region, a province, etc. Now, of course, Bitcoin has kind of, you know, it's like a, a bowling ball in that, in, that, in that space because Bitcoin comes as a decentralized currency with no possible government control, uh, no territoriality aspect. You know, you can send Bitcoin from U.S. to China with absolutely no control because right. basically you're just entering a transaction in a ledger, in a ledger right? So there is no physical, you know, there is no absolutely no physical movement of any kind. Uh, not that there is physical movement with a bank transfer, but with a bank transfer, you have to go through the hoops of different banks, different authorizations, etc. Um, now, that is a tricky part. I would say that with blockchain, yes, you're right. I mean, there could be kind of a recognition of an entity uh, like a central bank or some entity that uh, that the the data is stored, that the data has a certain yeah, it's being recognized as being stored, etc. But uh, the the main issue is, is is definitely around the currency, and one of the issues that a lot of startups in in the currency, and unfortunately sometimes in the blockchain world, because they basically confuse both of, of these, is that it's very difficult still today for a lot of Bitcoin companies or digital currency, and even sometimes blockchain companies, to open regular bank accounts to either do business, pay their staff, etc. Right. Uh, that is a shame, but that is, also, that is also a problem that a lot of money transmitters have, and that is also a, a kind of a byproduct of the whole de-risking that, uh, that is existing today which in banks, which is uh, a, a kind of a terrible, <laughs> terrible concept, which means that any business that creates potential risk to the bank is, is basically not welcome. Right, and unfortunately, right. a lot of these have been labeled that way. But getting away from just the currency aspect of it, and the reason I'm asking you this is because you're involved in blockchain technology, not just the currency side. What about if police departments used blockchain to secure evidence, the gathering of it? What about, like you said, notary? Um, the proof of it comes from the blockchain. The law would have to come along with it, and the law, I think, would have to recognize, okay, evidence gathered that is based on the blockchain has a certain level of proof in our eyes or a certain level of uh, veracity in our eyes. So that's what I'm asking you. Is there laws that... Do you think they'll, I mean, I guess at some point they'll come, or are they coming, or are they here, that are talking about these alternate uses of the blockchain, and what level of standard are they are they giving it, in terms of how, how good the information is? Yes, you're right, so that's an interesting case. So in the case of a proof that would be, and, and the proof itself would be either stored, or as I said earlier, maybe the term can also be called like anchored or hashed on the blockchain, yeah, yes, can... Can a court of law use this as a proof? Uh, so as I was saying, France seems to be starting. You know, it's a small step, but they recognize at least one application. Right. Um, what you need is probably jurisprudence, or you need basically a case, uh, kind of a case to start this whole process. Um, I'm, I, I would say that um, laws are coming, should be coming. I mean, in the conference where I was... Um, Yesterday, Con Agenda, the two leading lawyers in the space, uh, Marco Santori and uh, for the, I don't remember the name, but the other lawyer was from the law firms uh, Perkins Coy, which is a very um, well-established law firms with startups, tech startups in Silicon Valley and crypto and, and blockchain companies. Mm. 
they were talking about the different challenges of you know around you know blockchain and and, and digital currencies, but also blockchain. Uh, so you're right. There, basically, the law will will adapt um, at some point. Will will not really adapt, but will basically catch up with this kind of new uh, new technologies. There is one there is one aspect of where the law is already working uh, with blockchain companies or what we call blockchain for, for forensics or chain analysis. Okay. So there are a few there are a few companies around the world that are doing this. Uh, I, I know I know one in the UK. There are some in the US, in Europe. Uh, what they do is they basically help uh, Interpol or, or or the police administration of, of some kind or investigation units to basically use the blockchain to track certain assets uh, used in fraudulent activities. You probably heard about famous cases like Silk Road, etc. But there are smaller right. cases that, you know, we don't talk, not that we, uh, in the media, the media doesn't talk, you know, doesn't talk about regularly, which are a bit more discreet probably or smaller, where still Interpol or, you know, investigation units, sorry, are, are interested to know about. And, uh, and there are companies, startups actually built on this model, on the model that they're going to help uh, do forensics on the blockchain and they're going to go and try to find the source, the data, where the data comes from, everywhere it has been going. And because I, as I was explaining earlier, you know, you can track all the transactions. There's transparency kind of aspect, which is also an interesting governance aspect uh, can, can be built into. Um, yeah. is, is there. So basically you have the capacity, even if sometimes can be, you know, confusing, etc. So you, you have the capacity to go and track transactions. Okay. For data, for data. Yeah. And yeah, the, the the last question I wanted to ask you: um, anonymity versus transparency. It's kind of funny that Bitcoin, one of its premises was supposedly anonymity or pseudo anonymity, and yes. blockchain is all about transparency. So, where, where do you see these two opposing uh, forces going with uh, the the technology? Uh, it's it's a bit more complex because you're right. Initially, Bitcoin is is more like anonymous and and really pseudonymous because basically, as I was saying, you know, if you know who the wallet belongs to, then you basically know what transactions that wallet or that person has been doing for the last you know um, uh, seven years, right? So it, it's it's you're right. There is there is that aspect. Now, as you were saying, there is a lot of irony in the whole process. The fact that, for example governments and central banks would actually be quite favorable to cryptocurrencies in the sense that they are entirely trackable. So it's basically extremely stupid to try to do anything fraudulent with Bitcoin because as, as we were saying, everything can be tracked and you cannot really pretend or rely on the fact that they, they will never catch you because you know there is a chance. Now, central banks see the aspect whereby cash today can be transacted hand to hand without anyone knowing about it, right? Mm. Uh, and 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 in a in a world of negative interest rates, like in Europe now, like in Germany, where you know you pay to have your money in a bank, right? Then there is a risk that people would say, well, why do I leave cash in a bank? Why don't I just spend it or you know put it somewhere or in Bitcoin or whatever? So or in gold or so so the the, the central banks are looking at cryptocurrencies actually with the possible intention to be able to track what, um, and, and at least to have a track of where the 
money is going. So that's one aspect which is ironic in the sense that it's a little bit counterintuitive uh, in that sense. Now, the blockchain, as you were saying, transparency, yes, transparency in the world of public blockchains, not in the world of private blockchains. So mm. if, you use a pri if you use a public blockchain for a voting system or a governance system, for example, to help um, NGOs send money to Africa or to natural disaster areas, like we have invested in a company called Helper, Helper Bit, and they do that. Um, that's, yes, you bring a level of transparency that people need. People would trust more NGOs, you know, non-profit companies, whereby you actually know that a certain amount of the money and the large proportion of the money has actually gone to the area where you wanted it to go. So that's great. That's transparency and it brings uh, trust. Now, in the private blockchain world, you have the exact, you can have the opposite. You can basically have a lot of transactions and the private blockchain would try to make sure that only the nodes uh, and only even you know certain nodes can know about the transaction. So there are some models where, for example, interbank, it's not, not necessarily bank, but inter-companies, inter-financial institutions or intermediary companies uh, would, would not, uh, you know, would, would basically transact and not let anyone else see it. So blockchain is not necessarily transparency. It's transparency in the case of public blockchain. Um, and at the same time, the same way, in a way, digital currency is not about anonymity. Or, or, and there are many solutions out there for anonymous uh, transactions like uh, clones, like uh, Dashcoin and Monero, and now a new one called Zcash, which is a whole different topic. Uh, won't go too much into, but it's um, zero-proof knowledge. But the, the, there is a demand for anonymity on blockchains for you know, certain traders, certain users, but and at the same time, one day a central monetary authority could issue uh, a cryptocurrency because of the trackability of the whole system. Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, is there anything that you wanted to bring up that I didn't ask you? Uh, just, just maybe a, a quick uh, parenthesis on the trust because I, I, I. I realize I maybe pronounced this word a bit late in our conversation. I think trust is quite important. The fact that you can rely on a uh, on a network, on a decentralized network, to, you can trust a decentralized network to perform certain um, certain uses and certain applications and, and and certain processes and trust that is being done because you trust basically the the cryptography, the math, the trans the, the program behind it. So that's quite right. an important sector. Uh, there is one area that we could, I could quickly uh, talk about, which is Internet of Things. Uh, okay. Blockchain has, has potential users in the world of Internet of Things because it can both on the currency side, because of course machine-to-machine -machine payments are much easier in the language they know, which is data, and that therefore the wallet of your car may communicate with the wallet of the, your plug, of the plug of you know, if it's an electric car. Um, more easily in cryptocurrency of some kind than in, than in you know dollars or what we call fiat currency. But at the same time, in Internet of Things, blockchain can be used as as a blockchain itself, not only for payments. Um, so that's a, another area which is of course uh, of interest today. Um, so yes, so these are and 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 just to clarify that you know. 
we are investing. So we have invested in 15 companies since 2013. Wow. Um, we are uh, also educating. We are doing blockchain tech labs around the world, uh, mainly uh, in Europe and London for the moment because that's where I'm most of the time. But uh, you know, we're open to do more around the world. Uh, we think that education is very important, both for the tech developers, but also for you know, executives of companies, entrepreneurs, or, or you know, uh, brokers, accountants, etc. So we, right. we we do blockchain training and we do blockchain tech tech training as well. And okay, and, and yeah, the last thing for listeners that want to get involved with uh, Concilium, Concilium, what opportunities yes. do they have to either take one of your training programs or to present to you a candidate for investments? I mean, you know, how can people contact you? There is there is a uh, website called coincilium.com, C-O-I-N-S-I-L-I-U-M.com. Um, there is information there about our training programs. Quite easy to send us an email uh, about that at info at concilium.com. There is also the fact that we are quoted on a new junior market in London called ISDX, the ICAP Securities and Derivative Exchange. So that's a way, for example, for people to... Uh, let's say buy in our portfolio of uh, 15 companies and, and our activities in a way really? or invest in the space um, and then yes and I'm, I'm regularly speaking uh, around the world I'm, I'll be speaking in London soon I think in about a week or 10 days time at an event called blockchain money um, and uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm easily you can find me on LinkedIn Twitter etc uh, uh, startup Eddie is my Okay. All right, Eddie. Well, I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, thanks for Thank taking you. the time to do this. All right. All right. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.